Hello, hello everybody. Okay, so <laughs> today we're gonna talk about high entropy alloys of experience and this is to a large extent more or less what I'm referring to when I say the gems to be discovered in the state space of consciousness. The reason to embark on a journey of discovering and mapping out the state space of consciousness, it's those, those gems. Now, uh, before I get into it, though, uh, the query of the day, which is going to be very connected to, to the topic, is uh, Le Mail by Jean-Paul Gaultier. And uh, it's quite an interesting fragrance. Uh, it's very, very nice. I uh, personally enjoy it. Although it's not one of my favorites, uh, but it is, it is really good. Um, and uh, Quilia-wise, it's uh, quite a... Quite a notable, but uh, sociologically, something interesting to, to point out is that a lot of people associate it as kind of the the gay fragrance or the very you know a, a archetypically gay fragrance. And like I, you know, you may think it's because of the bottle, and like maybe there's uh, something about that. You know, the, the bottle is pretty homo erotic, um, but it's uh, I think more than that. And also, you may think it's just the the marketing. You know, the marketing is like all of these like sexy sailors. Um, waiting for a, a girl, but like, you know, kind of like very intimately close to each other in sexy clothing. Um, but I, I think there might actually be something uh, uh, deeper to that, which, um, so, you know, there's a, a really interesting study. The sample size wasn't very large, so I'm not necessarily very convinced by it, but it says that if you ask people to wear, you know, a shirt for a day, and then um, you take that shirt and you ask, you know, participants of the study to smell it, and then rate how enjoyable the smell of the shirt, you know, the use the shirt is, you will see a, an interesting pattern, which is like, okay, yes, uh, straight men will tend to rate more highly the smell of the uh, shirts that uh, women were wearing. They enjoy that, you know, the, the typical women smell. I, and um, uh, gay men rate um, their shirts of men highly. But here's an interesting thing. Is not just the shirts of other men, is the shirts of specifically other gay men without actually rating the shirts of straight men as particularly uh, pleasant. Now that's uh, quite fascinating, right? So I tend to say that, you know, we, we assume that people's experiences are like very similar to each other, whereas in fact, you know, probably the, the painting over, you know, the our inner world simulation, the way, the way it's uh, textured is probably pretty different from, from person to person, person to person. So, and uh, when it comes to like sexual orientation, something that, uh, you know, I guess the cartoon picture that people have is like, well, you know, the gay men probably have some feelings that are, you know, very feminine, or maybe they have kind of a, a an emotional life that's kind of in between, you know, a feminine life and a, and a, and a male life or something like that. Whereas I think, uh, it's actually more complicated. It's like there's going to be some features, some, you know, qualia, some aspects of their experience that are just essentially just masculine. And then some other aspects that are essentially just feminine. And then some aspects too that are kind of in between. But then what it gets interesting is that I also think there's some aspects that are just different, that are actually just not in the classical male-female spectrum. In, in other words, it's not really a spectrum. You know, there's uh, uh, many other ways in which... Uh, can vary, and I, yeah, I, I definitely suspect that uh, in the future, when we finally analyze 
you know, the normal human variability in terms of the, the qualia that people experience. Um, we're going to find uh, quite a few fascinating sur surprises, and one of them I, I expect is um, kind of uh, unexpectedly different rather than just in between, you know, masculine and, and feminine uh, for the life of a uh, the lived experience of, uh, uh, I guess, like LGBT more more broadly. Okay, so that's uh, Le Male, Jean-Paul Gaultier. And if you look up in forums, you will definitely find, uh, if you ask for kind of like, what is a gay fragrance, uh, people tend to recommend this one. Uh, sociologically, there's also probably a component of signaling that, you know, if there's a kind of commonly... Uh, you know, assumed, you know, perception that a particular smell uh, belongs to a given subculture, you know, you can use it to signal it and, you know, self-reinforcing, you know, the, the quality itself may not be, <laughs> may not be, you know, what, what's actually gay, so to speak, in here. But um, the reason I bring it on, though, is because it's a pretty strange uh, smell in the sense that it forms kind of a completely new entity, even though the elements are somewhat recognizable. The Gestalt is very much its own thing. And uh, I would describe it as essentially a mixture of kind of these three rather different, you know, dimensions of experience, which is vanilla. Then you also have kind of a lavender and mint. And the mint is the one that really surprised me because once you, you realize it has some mint, then it kind of explains why it feels so strangely kind of refreshing and, and, uh, and uh, watery, you know, kind of uh, uh, moist, <laughs> actually, in a sense. Uh, <laughs> whereas, um, you know, because of the vanilla, it's also very creamy. So it ends up being kind of this very strange, very uh, watery type of, uh, type of vanilla type, type of scent. Um, and it's completely blended. So it's not like, you know, lavender here and vanilla here and mint here. No, they kind of come together at once. And that makes it, uh, as I'll describe, a kind of high entropy alloy of scent. Okay, so taking a step back, what is a high entropy alloy? And to explain this, I'm going to explain basically a little bit about, uh, you know, metals and like alloys. So uh, it's quite fascinating that, for example, you know, you, of course, you can use pure metals, but then if you look at kind of like how metals usually tend to be used, uh, they tend to be alloys where there's usually a very high proportion of a particular metal and then a tiny proportion of some other metals or maybe some, you know, non-metal elements. Uh, you know, uh, historically, bronze really comes to mind where basically it's copper, largely copper, and then with, yeah, you know, something like 12% tin or something something in that range. Uh, and then you can also include like other metals like aluminum, um, manganese, nickel, zinc in, in relatively small proportions. So, you know, this is kind of big piece of copper and then, you know, up to like 15% of something else, largely, largely tin. And that makes it uh, harder. It just makes it a, a harder metal and, you know, it can definitely give you an edge in a, in a battle, you know, in, in prehistory or, you know, but it also... You know, all sorts of other like applications whenever you need kind of a, a harder metal than, than just copper. Um, now, uh, when I believe in like the 1200s BC, uh, there were like kind of a, a reduced trade routes for tin. So like there was, yeah, some kind of pressures to 
develop something else, and then you you have the the Iron Age, which is uh, basically sorry, the, yeah, specifically the steel. You know, it's uh, you have uh, iron, then if you mix with a little bit of carbon, it will form something completely kind. Of, well, not completely new, but like it it is new, and it, it is basically just tougher, and uh, and is like surprisingly tougher. And uh, I saw this fan you know, fascinating documentary about the microstructure of, of uh, steel. And, you know, it's made of these things called Christ crystallites. I mean, basically all matter is made of tiny crystallites for, for the most part. Um, one kind of a interesting thing to enrich the conversation is basically frozen food actually relies on crystallites of, of water, you know, because if you just freeze food, uh, large crystals will, will grow in it and uh, it's going to, you know, destroy cells is going to destroy the boundary of cells the membranes through these shards of, of ice um, but if you freeze something really really quickly rather than having these long shards of ice grow you actually have just lots and lots and lots of tiny crystals and none of them is like large enough you know to actually destroy the, uh, the cell membrane and therefore your food doesn't get all mushy and you know unedible and yucky and un unpleasant <laughs> and uh, spoiled whenever you you thaw it so yeah basically crystallites you know very important for frozen food in the in the case of steel basically what you'll have is a a lot of kind of like iron crystallites but then other crystallites that have like different proportions of carbon and uh, each of those crystallites will uh, constitute something that is called a, a phase and a phase is basically a, a, a geometrically organized piece of matter where you actually get a, a crystal. You actually get a space group organization, uh, basically a three-dimensional tessellation where you accommodate different elements into it. And, and usually a phase is, you know, perfectly repeating. Um, although there's like some complications there about like whether you can swap atoms or not um, and leave it, you know, geometrically the same. And that's, a, that's its own rabbit hole. But yeah, basically... Most matter in general will be made of like these tiny crystals. How large they are will depend. You will, you know, modify the, the properties of the material. Uh, again, like compare like ice cubes versus ice cream. Ice cream is like tiny crystals, so much. Uh, I guess like much more malleable, much easier to 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 deal with. So, um, and uh, what happens though is that you know if uh, with with an alloy you get kind of these you know interesting structures that change at the macroscopic level the properties of the metal um and uh but there's more i mean like if you think about it okay so there's only like pure metals and then like alloys with like a big chunk of something and then like a tiny chunk of something else or maybe like a long tail of like tiny trace amounts of various other metals or non-metal elements well what about things that contain several big chunks of different metals and that's, uh, you know, something that wasn't really looked at very carefully for, for the longest time. And partly is because of combinatorial explosions. <laughs> um, just there's so many ways in which you can order the proportions of these metals that, you know, there's just so many things to explore. And who knows which ones are interesting? Well, before there was research into high entropy alloys, there really wasn't, you know, much of a guide or heuristic uh, to, to discover it. Um, but, you know, interestingly, um, some of the, I guess, like more like, daring or like people who, you know, some of the scientists who were not afraid of looking silly <laughs> wanted to explore these. And they just started out by basically mixing 
20 different metals together in equal proportions and just melting them and just crystallize them in different conditions and you know just see what happens and uh, well from that research what ended up happening is that you ended up having like what you might describe as a multi-phasic solid that results from it and if you look at it microscopically it will basically be kind of this mesh with uh, different phases of different high entropy alloys so like one of these phases may have like three different metals that like kind of congeal together into this like stable geometrically repeating structure another you know kind of tentacle tendrils uh you know phase and meshed with everything else will have like maybe seven metals in different proportions but geometrically arranged and uh and then you know you may have like some you know shards of like pure like iron or like some shards of zinc or something like that now the whole thing this whole monster of you know multi-phasic high entropy alloy thing uh it's for the most part useless you know it's usually going to have just extremely bad properties like it's just not going to have a lot of ductile uh strength yield strength or or uh, um, uh fracture toughness or any of these like properties that material material scientists love so much but something that you can do though is look at any one of those phases and rather than treating the material as a whole you then investigate the properties of those phases what proportions of the metals constituted those phases and then create kind of a high entropy alloy from scratch with those metals in those proportions in other words you're kind of letting nature to guide you by looking at how it assembles you know who who gets uh, mixed up together <laughs> you know think of a, of a big party and just like mixing it for a while and you, you know a lot of people who didn't know each other you see how they're grouping together it's like well okay maybe next time i make a party that is made of people like those in each of those groups that kind of formed and uh, you may get you know something where everybody's more entertained you know i don't know it's just a, an, an analogy to throw it out there <laughs> so okay so now uh from a technical point of view though it's important to distinguish that there's this thing called uh complex concentrated alloys which would be kind of you know those 20 metal weird multi-phasic thing and basically that category is like a superset that includes within it the high entropy alloys but it, it also allows like all sorts of other you know mixtures basically lots of different phases together in different structures and like all of that would be you know part of the complex concentrated alloys but high entropy alloys more specifically are where you only have one phase and that is the thing that in a sense is kind of harder to find i mean like you you can find them with the technique as just mentioned but that doesn't tell you how to find all of them that just you know shows you some of them but you know is there a principled way of exploring the state space so that you can say I predict that if you mix, you know, chromium and, and magnesium and iron and zinc and silver and gold and platinum in these proportions, <laughs> you will get just one phase. You know, that's a much, much tougher, tougher problem. Um, and in that sense, that's why, yeah, they're kind of uh, gems in the, in the state space. It's uh, difficult to, to mine them and identify them, but the rewards can be very, very high. And in the case of, for example, one of the most uh, studied High entropy alloys nowadays, uh, which is a equiatomic. I mean, that is to say, exactly equal number of atoms for each of uh, the following, which is chromium, magne magnesium, iron, uh, uh, cobalt, and uh, and nickel. And um, 
and this one tends to essentially have just like superior strength to pretty much anything else that has been created. Uh, and it's, it has a really good balance between strength and uh, yield strength and, and uh, fracture toughness. So it's just like a really good material, you know, and it's, you know, it's not just kind of this academic thing of like, oh, it would be like, I wonder what the properties may be. You know, it's like, no, this this is actually world has world class properties. You know, it's like like top of the line for a very particular purpose. And and likewise, um if you were to kind of design a utility function, you say like, hey, I want to maximize, you know, the square root of toughness plus ductility minus, you know, conductivity or something like that. Uh chances are, you know, that the material that you know, maximizes that, it's going to be a very custom, you know, high entropy alloy that maybe <laughs> really sucks at everything else, <laughs> but is excellent at that really specific narrow property. And, and I think that's, uh, that's how to think about this, so that really, you know, there's, you know, the materials out there is not, you know, just all of the elements that you can make and how you could like, you know, uh, put them together at microscopic level. Like, no, there's a huge state space of possible carefully crafted very well balanced high entropy alloys and uh and i just like love to think about it because it really opens up how you approach studying the state space of consciousness and what's uh to be found in it and uh i mean i'll i'll start with kind of like making a, a metaphor with uh with a uh, scent qualia. And uh, I've got to say that, you know, Le Mail by Jean-Paul Gaultier, it's, um, it's a high entropy alloy type perfume in that, you know, the lavender, vanilla, and mint truly combine into something that is completely blended. And it feels like a new note. And it feels like this weird metallic, refreshing, but also creamy flavor note. And it's all one thing. It's not separate channels. And in that sense, yeah, it seems like it, I personally, I suspect it's pretty well has to be really well balanced to create a, to create that effect. Another another one that I consider to be a high entropy alloy type perfume, which is also very characteristic. And uh, one one of the I think one of the signs that a perfume is a high entropy alloy is that people will describe it both as highly characteristic and that they're like clones of it. Because if something has to be so carefully balanced to generate that particular blended flavor with emergent properties, yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to deviate too much from it without like that effect decaying into something else. So you will generally have like, yeah, you know, maybe the, the first time it was, uh, you know, posted but um, and produced and, and sold. But then, yeah, you will find like kind of lookalikes and the lookalikes are going to be very similar, you know, like, <laughs> you can't make kind of a too much of a fake, you know, chromium, magnesium, iron, cobalt, nickel <laughs> alloy and have the same properties without like really getting, you know, the proportions pretty close. So also it's probably going to be more difficult to replicate. Anyway, so Blue de Chanel, it's uh, for me to my nose is basically it's very strange and interesting because it's kind of a grapefruit flavor, but turned into a, a, a wood. And, and it it's really strange. It's like the grapefruit is in the form of a wood. It's not that you have like woody notes and then grapefruit notes. They actually blend in such a particular way that it ends up being just one specially reducible note. Um, 
And the last one is one that a lot of people call one of the best perfumes. I believe uh, Luca Turin thinks of it as the best perfume in the world. I find it quite interesting. Maybe I don't enjoy it as much, but I do recognize it's very, very well balanced somehow. I mean, there's something very special about it that turns it into, yeah, whenever I were to smell this, I would say, yeah, this is uh, Mitsuko by Guerlain. Guerlain. And it's a... Uh, Something that is kind of like has vanilla, it has um, ylang ylang, a bunch of ylang ylang, um, amber. Oh, and uh, moss. I guess it's a it's a shaipur, so it has a, a moss moss scent, and uh, it's quite fantastic. I personally wouldn't wear it because it's really intense and very specific in, in its vibe. Uh, I'm not sure if I really identify or it's not ego syntonic, <laughs> but but it's uh, really interesting. Now, I also wanted to briefly mention kind of uh, things that you may think are high entropy aloe uh, smells, but are not. So one of them would be Habit Rouge, which is kind of a, a mixture of, yeah, some like bergamot, uh, you know, bergamot like flavor together with like indolic notes, uh, kind of like jasmine. And uh, the thing is that even though it's a very complex and rich smell, it's multifaceted. I mean, basically, you can still tell apart the different components of it. And, like, they separate. They And also, they come at different times. And, like, they evolve. And, like, so it's not... It doesn't have that property of being monophasic, like like the other ones I was showing you. Uh, you may also think, you know, Tommy Girl may be a high-entropy alloy. But the thing is, its complexity, I don't think it reaches that level. I would call it just kind of a medium entropy or maybe low entropy. Uh, it does come as one note, but it's a note that's not that different from some other things that people will recognize. And it's not, I don't think it's that unique. It is really well done, but it's not, it's not that unique. Oh, and uh, uh, Grace Ballet Rose by Philosophy. Just, uh, it would be a high entropy alloy scent if it wasn't for the fact that the musk's component of it and the flowery components of it don't actually blend, they end up just being different channels. I mean, they modify each other, but they end up being like different channels. So I wouldn't consider a high entropy alloy. I mean, high, high entropy alloy is in a sense, in scent at least, it's kind of, they come all at once. They are just a personality on their own entirely. And you can't really modify much of it without it breaking apart. And I think like gestalt effects are, are really key in here. Um, now, in order to really, you know, explore the space of high entropy sense, and uh, I, I've, got to, I've got to say that like, if you push it too far, you get this thing that is called Laurax, which is like when you mix about like 15 or more, ideally up to 40, but like from 15 it starts to happen. Like molecules are just completely different smells, including bad smelling molecules as well, but just like completely different categories, like as different as possible. You will start to get something that feels kind of this hotel lobby kind of effect, which is like a clean smell, but is also completely neutral and also all over the place. Uh, maybe like the smell of a, maybe a stadium, but maybe not close to the food where you will recognize some foods, but just it's a kind of like a mixture of so many things that nothing stands out. And uh, some people call it kind of the, the uh, smell white, no white noise or something like that. So you can push the entropy too high and then it goes into the same thing and basically converges. So basically if you were to kind of graph the, how characteristic a smell can be, not that it will be, but how, what is kind of the upper bound, 
as a function of its entropy, I think the curve would be something like this. Like it climbs up pretty quickly, hits a peak, and then it decays slowly over a long range. And I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of perfumes kind of live over here. I would call them like very high entropy perfumes and they, they're not very characteristic. I mean, when people say this is like very generic smelling, it's probably just way over here um, because it's just so, uh, there's like a bunch of super cheap perfumes like that. Just one example, I don't know, Adidas, Team Four, just like some like really cheap perfumes. There's a lot of them. Like they're just like such high entropy, such high entropy. They're, they're not characteristic anymore. Um, and they don't make, you know, monophasic, uh, you know, irreducible complexity effects or anything like that. So they're pretty boring in that sense. It's kind of a listening to varieties of, of noise. It's like, yeah, sure, some artists can make interesting noises, but it's not the same as listening to a fantastically well-crafted song where all of the elements create this <laughs> je ne sais quoi <laughs> that is actually irreducible. Um, and... Uh, if, if the set is way too simple, then people will generally complain that um, it's like too linear or, or too too uh, uninteresting. And uh, I, I you know, there's like some quote-unquote natural things that uh, you might still enjoy that are kind of in that space, you know, something like, okay, yeah, this is like lemon and ginger. It's like, all right, you know, lemon ginger space, you know, that's not high entropy enough to be characteristic as such, but yeah, it's a nice vibe, you know, the left. And I explored a lot of lemon lavender, for example. It's like, yeah, that's not high enough entropy to be a, a perfume, to have a, a personality, but it's an interesting, you know, combination of vibes. It's an interesting space. Or so this one, which is a cardamom uh, mandarin. And uh, yeah, I enjoy it a lot, but it's, uh, it doesn't get to the level of it being having a personality in having kind of this 3D uniqueness quality to it. Okay, so that's with, uh, with sense. But... We can also do this with uh, uh, so many other things. And uh, I've got to definitely uh, mention, for example, that in the realm of, let's say, uh, yeah, like substances, for example, uh, if you look at kind of the, the binding affinities of something like DMT, well, DMT has binding affinities to something like, you know, 15 different receptors and like very different receptors uh, as well. Whereas 5-MeO-DMT has much, a much more like narrow set of binding affinities you know, especially, you know, 5 T 7 And, uh, when, you know, somebody like Thomas Ray, who really, really, really cares about these binding affinities, he will basically try to explain everything in terms of, you know, the breadth or depth of, of affinity of these different molecules. Um, and that the reason why DMT is so phenomenologically rich is because of, you know, it's activating so many different, you know, subsystems in, in the nervous system, whereas maybe 5-MeO is activating just a few. Mm, I suspect you don't necessarily need to invoke, you know, breadth of uh, receptor activity in order to explain the entropy of the resulting experience on a given substance. Um, partly because I think, I mean, it's kind of like with the game of life, where like some particular rules generate like very simple tessellations, and some other rules generate just nothing, and some other rules generate in co constant chaos, you know, unsettling and interesting chaos. And I very much see that something like DMT is kind of, you know, something that just doesn't fit an integer number of times. The vibrations that you experience on DMT don't fit an integer number of times in your, in your nervous system. And, <laughs> and as a result, you get these endless generations uh, of complexity. I mean, like the other, the other metaphor is, uh, uh, and this is perhaps like much more literal, actually, that 5-MeO-DMT uh, 
is kind of like providing, reducing the average synaptic length by so much that it allows neurons across the nervous system to basically synchronize. And you get this very harmonious synchronization that is very, very global. Whereas DMT does reduce, reduce the average synaptic length, but just not enough to enable global synchrony. And instead what happens is that you get clusters of synchrony. In fact, you end up having competing clusters of synchrony, that kind of this Darwinian process that are trying to take over the, the entirety of your consciousness, <laughs> but they can't because the average synaptic length doesn't allow it. They can't coordinate enough to generate a global coherent state. And uh, that manifests, you know, it's kind of like this crazy Darwinian, you know, evolution of different patterns of qualia. That's, I think, like, anyhow, like, when you do that, and I think, like, that's one of the reasons why I would describe DMT experiences as being very high entropy for the most part, and also having the ability to generate these really incredibly reducible uh, vibes that are... You really need to experience them all together at once to know like, oh gosh, yes, they fit together <laughs> but just perfectly. <laughs> and it's, this is an irreducible state that unless you put all the pieces at once and you get the gestalt as an effect, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And like DMT, I think, has a ton of those. There's a ton of gems in the states of consciousness that stochastically, randomly, right now, kind of a, a Russian roulette style, you may stumble upon and it might be a good time. Um, or at least very informative when it comes to the, the state of consciousness. Okay, so that's uh, that's drugs. I, I, I also do want to say that, I mean, like, similar to smells and, uh, and metals, that like, yeah, there's like some drugs that if you were to combine, for example, they're just not going to generate anything interesting. I would definitely highlight something like all the RAS attempts. Like, I'm not very interested, let's say, in the state space of curacetam, aniracetam, primuracetam, oxyracetam, linear combinations for those is like, they're practically the same thing. Uh, so that's very minor tweaks. Whereas if we're talking about like, hey, the space of a cholinergic drug and a 5-HT7 drug combined with a, you know, sigma drug, and, you know, a kappa opioid antagonist, okay, like, you start to pile up these very, you know, very, very expensive bases, bases set, then, yeah, the state space will probably contain a lot of uncharted territory, and also some regions with, you know, generally emergent new strange effects, and I would say something like, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely make uh, more videos about, you know, the state space of combinations of drugs, but uh, just as a classic example of like really surprising synergies uh, is like dissociatives and, and psychedelics that anybody who's tried both and then try the combination, they say, yeah, this is not just the linear addition of the two. There is a strange, strange synergy that happens between them that is almost kind of a multiplication of their effects. Uh, personally, I have this uh, account of it, which is kind of like describing what happens when you stack reverb and delay effects on a signal you end up you can have kind of these like actual you know resonant waves uh that are very stable and enduring and i think like you know <laughs> psychedelics and dissociatives combined have some of that character anyhow i strongly expect there to be yeah states of consciousness that are like unbelievably different than anything we have experienced that are just found in 
you know, the high entropy region of possible combinations of psychoactive drugs. And uh, most of them are probably unpleasant, but some of them <laughs> are probably revolutionary when it comes to, yeah, the capacity to um, generate new information and process information in a novel way, essentially have a, a, a very enriched set of building blocks for your mind. Um, and some of them, which are probably just very, very, very blissful. Now, uh, I will mention, though, that, you know, however much I value the good 5-MeO-DMT state space, basically the ultra-blissful kind of genetic quality of it, um, you know, with a, no, a kind of non-duality qualia, you know, pervasive in that space, uh, very beautiful and, and all that, and grounding, but uh, it's very, very simple. You know, the entropy is going to be very, very, very simple. You know, perfectly repeating lattices and honeycomb patterns and uh, basically smooth space and, you know, pseudo-time arrow referred to my, my talk on the on time, phenomenal time. But yeah, basically smooth space-time, phenomenal space-time. Yeah, that's very simple. Whereas, you know, a complex breakthrough DMT, regular DMT experience tends to be super high entropy. You know, you see like, a lot of different like tiny uh, kind of vibration modes that are competing with each other, creating this super strange assembly, kind of orchestra, sometimes extremely dissonant, sometimes extremely consonant, but always, you know, very interesting <laughs> with a lot of emergent effects. Completely, um, yeah, they, they completely do not exist in what we might call room temperature consciousness. Okay. Uh, I'd also mention now, you can also explore these, you know, in room temperature consciousness to some extent. Uh, I sometimes do this as an exercise, which is, you know, come up with, you know, five words at random and then trying to generate a mind space that contains them kind of just, uh, just, just inhabiting it. And then kind of load them, having loaded them up in my working memory to see if there's any kind of interactions. And of course, if you raise the energy parameter and then you cool down, you can potentially like anneal some conceptual structures in, and internal representations that actually blend these different components. Uh, and that, that can be quite interesting. Just as an exercise, let's say, uh, try to you know, have all of the following things in your mind and then try to label that state of mind. And that might be kind of a conceptual high entropy region, you know, that we're going to be creating together. So the following things are 17, you know, 17, the number. <laughs> All right, so we got it, 17. Uh, birthday cake, uh, including, you know, birthday cake flavor, which interestingly is, is a flavor in and of itself, <laughs> even though birthday cake can be of chocolate, strawberry, etc. There's also <laughs> the flavor of birthday cake. You know, I don't understand why, but uh, it's the case. Then a uh, golden retriever, the the dog, uh, piano in D major, and dodecahedra, and if you don't know what a dodecahedra is, then maybe just think of a pentagon, which would be kind of a, this polygon with five sides. Okay, so I'm just going to repeat it. 17, birthday cake, golden retriever, piano in D major, and pentagon slash dodecahedra. Well, let me know what comes to mind if you load up your working memory with these concepts and sensations. And 
I mean, this works especially well in an interesting way if you're like, you know, tripping or something like that, and then you can <laughs> kind of create renditions, high entropy renditions. Now, it's interesting as an exercise just to do these with random concepts in order to kind of like test the imaginative limits of your, of your mind. But uh, it's also interesting to highlight that in a sense, people in general have kind of like different, you know, proportions of different ideas and concepts and frameworks loaded up into their working memory for different portions of the day. And that, you know, which concepts you're loading up in your working memory and which ones are interacting with each other, in a sense, kind of tells you what culture or subculture you belong to. And, uh, and I've got to say that, I mean, when you have kind of like large uh, crowds, very large subcultures, for the most part, they're going to have a lowest common denominator, which is like a set of concepts that all of the people in that cluster can exchange and in sense believe in. And for the most part, therefore, most uh, mainstream uh, memeplexes end up being just not very high entropy. They end up being like very, relatively simple, for the most part, not very welcoming of complexity, uh, you know, ways of seeing the world. Whereas when you look at like, yeah, the subcultures of people who are kind of uh, thinking in a new way, you can get kind of very rich uh, set of ideas that are kind of in the background that enable new ways of coordinating as well as new kinds of conversations and new kinds of conceptualizations. And I've got to say that uh, kind of subcultures for which I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan, I, I really enjoy, for example, the vibe of the conferences of these places because in a sense, the vibe of a conference is kind of the high entropy <laughs> alloy of the various assumptions and methodologies and conceptions and, and you know, likes and dislikes of that subculture. And, and this would be uh, EA Global. I mean, I'm, I really enjoy like effective altruism as a subculture and um, especially as a conference, as a group of people. It's like you can walk up to people and talk about, you know, optimizing matter for, <laughs> for uh, you know, maximum maximum bullies and they'll take you seriously and you, you can actually strike an interesting intelligent you know non-trivial conversation about it <laughs> at ea global uh so it's an interesting that's an interesting high entropy alloy of concepts you know mixing things such as compassion but also counting and being very mathematical and rigorous about it and wow yeah i like i like that combo um psychedelic science uh, 2017 i went to that conference that was fantastic um and uh, definitely recommend the kind of a high entropy alloy of mixing rigorous science and uh, neuroscience with, uh, yeah, people just being really honest and open about their exotic experiences. So that, that that's, uh, and uh, uh, the science of consciousness as a conference is also pretty good, although they have somewhat of a uh, paranormal bent, but um, still, I mean, that that's kind of like an aesthetic or a piece of the background, but it still ends up being like, really good vibe, really good conversation. And uh, if I were to kind of like try to sum up, you know, briefly, kind of like what is the high entropy alloy of, you know, qualia research or the, you know, the team I'm a part of, my, I guess, my subculture, it would be something that takes elements from all these things. I mean, EA Global, it takes elements from psychedelic science, the science of consciousness, uh, science of non-duality. But, you know, it... It also uh, kind of like borrows from Buddhism um, and, you know, the hedonistic imperative, um, game theory. So these are some of the things that are kind of are loaded up in a sense. You know, when I write an article, <laughs> what are the 
ideas that are kind of uh, affordances, uh, sources of, of, of building blocks to blend concepts and develop this aesthetic. Well, yeah, all of those things, and especially, you know, the things I was mentioning on the previous episode on consciousness versus replicators, like, you know, quilia formalism, you know, uh, gradients of wisdom, consciousness versus replicators, valence structuralism, the pleasure principle, all of these things, you know, when they're like kind of loaded up, they are rich soil for the creation of novel and frankly, you know, potentially quite enriching new ways of seeing the world that are, you know, positive some, hopefully beneficial for all, but at the very least they provide kind of a, a potential selling point for, for good actors. So anyway, um, so definitely think about it in that way. And uh, I guess I'll conclude with uh, kind of a, yeah, maybe a slight discussion on like, okay, like what happens when you apply this to, for example, what is the appropriate uh, kind of mental environment for doing productive work? And, uh, you know, that's one of a very interesting thing because if you ask me what is the appropriate mental environment for relaxation, hey, that's probably a low entropy state. You know, it's listening to very calm music and neurologically, you know, neurologically, like deep sleep, um, a non-REM sleep, like neurologically, it's not a very complex state. You have these uh, ways of kind of quantifying entropy in the brain and, uh, and they would show, yeah, they're not very complex. And um, whereas REM sleep and especially, you know, being awake, it's uh, kind of a different game. And especially, you know, things such as like states of flow, um, I would say, you know, when you're working, for you to do productive work, in a sense, you have to find a really fine balance between a lot of things. And that's why when, it, you know, when somebody says, like, I'm not in the mood for, for it, in some sense, yeah, of course, you should probably try to see what happens if you push through. Like, maybe it's, you're mistaken that you're not in the mood for it, or that you're actually in the perfect mood for it. But for some really deep work and very difficult work, Sometimes, yeah, actually being in the precise mood is quintessential. And there is this power law <laughs> where if you're exactly in the right mood with the right concepts loaded up, available, it's way easier. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, be because, you know, what, you've got to be excited. You've got to have, like, motivation to do it. At the same time, you've got to be realistic and, in a sense, have, like, some inhibitory feedback as well as, you know, being emotionally receptive to not being on the right path. Um, and there's like a lot of things that are kind of have to be finely tuned for you to do a specific type of job. And in that sense, yes, I would say, you know, you as you when you're the best programmer or you when you're the best, you know, comic design, comic drawer or like, you know, a, a designer or, uh, you know, like a writer or something like that. The best version of you that has, you know, everything just right to do the best job is probably a high entropy alloy version of you. And it's probably one that it took you a long time to identify because you had to explore the state space and find just the right balance. And you know, sometimes <laughs> you will find that, hey, actually that right balance happens exactly also, you know, between noon and 4 p.m. Exactly when I have between 50 and 100 milligrams of caffeine and I've been listening to music and I went for a run in the morning. And like, yeah, maybe that is kind of the optimal <laughs> amount of, you know, entropy and annealing before, you know, before being able to fully load up all of these concepts and have them interact in just the right way. 
in order to make progress. So anyway, uh, I think uh, that I think that's it for now. Uh, I guess uh, I just wanted to yeah wrap up by saying that uh, I've been yeah very very excited and happy to to see lots of fascinating comments and people reaching out. So thank you so much for the encouragement and as always I'm happy to um, address topics if you if you suggest them. All right, so infinite bliss and thank you everybody for tuning in. Ciao. <laughs>